Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hey, it's Cornell, and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we're going to cover the top ETFs in Canada, specifically for Canadian investors. These findings are based on eight experts in this field who are part of the Best ETFs in Canada Guide, which is published annually on Money Sense and written by the one and only Jonathan Chevreau. In this episode, we're going to talk about what the findings were. We will actually give you the ticker symbols of the top ETFs according to the panel of experts, and we will discuss why those particular ETFs were chosen and go into detail about some of the nuances so that you can better choose which ETF is better for your situation. Each category has several finalists, so it's important to know the caveats of how they differ so that you can choose the one that's right for you. For a free written version of this guide, you can go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash top ETF, all one word, that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash top ETF. That link will take you right to the guide on the Money Sense site where you can see the tables with all the top ETFs. But like I said earlier, you definitely don't want to just look at the table of the top ETFs and randomly pick a few as there are pros and cons to the different ETFs. So use this episode as a resource to supplement the written Money Sense Guide so that you can better choose which ETFs on the list are right for you. So feel free to follow along and enjoy with the text version on the Money Sense site. To discuss this, we of course have Jonathan Chevreau on the show. I have been reading this guide from him annually since I first started investing almost a decade ago. I feel he is truly providing a great service to Canadians by publishing this every year over at MoneySense. In fact, I've been referring students of my investing course to his annual top ETF guide for years as an excellent resource to help Canadians decide on which ETFs to choose for their portfolio from the thousands that are out there. So I'm super excited have him on. He's also the author of the book Independence Day and Victory Lap Retirement. And you can also see more of his writing at findependencehub.com. And of course, he has many great articles on moneysense.ca as well. Our second guest is Benjamin Felix from PWL Capital. Ben was one of the panelists on this year's top ETF guide. He's a portfolio manager at PWL Capital, one of Canada's most respected financial planning and asset management companies. He also has an excellent YouTube channel called Common Sense Investing, and he's the co-host of the Rational Reminder podcast. Definitely one of my favorite financial planning and investing podcasts here in Canada. The interview was initially going to be just John and I, but Ben brought up some really interesting nuances when it comes to picking these top ETFs. And so we really wanted him on to give his technical and in-depth perspective of some of the additional factors we should consider that weren't in the written version of the guide. Definitely feel free to follow along as you listen to this. And that link again is at buildwealthcanada.ca slash top ETF. All one word, no dashes or spaces. Of course, as a disclaimer, investors should still do their own research and should treat this information as helpful tips and education and not as a substitute for an investment professional that is familiar with your particular situation. Now, just a really quick announcement before we start, I will once again be hosting the Canadian Financial Summit this year, and I have free tickets for you. So in case you're new to the show, the conference is 100% online, so no travel required. It's specifically for Canadians. It's taking place in the fall, and I'm bringing on some of Canada's top personal finance experts to share their best practices to help you retire early, invest better, lower your fees, 
pay less on taxes, and help you learn the best practices when it comes to personal finance and investing, specifically here in Canada, so that you can hit your financial independence number much quicker. Now, collectively, these past guests of the summit have been in hundreds of media articles from major news and financial publications in Canada, such as the Globe and Mail, the Financial Post, Global News, CTV, Yahoo Finance, many, many more. Past guests include the creator of the TFSA, Kevin McCarthy, the Warren Buffett of Canada, Peter Hudson, Rob Carrick from the Globe and Mail, and many more. So like I said, I'm giving away free tickets to the entire event. So to get them when I release them, just sign up anywhere for free over at buildwealthcanada.ca. And that way I have your email to send them to you when they're ready. And also as a bonus, when you sign up, I'll also send you my PDF guide on the top personal finance and investing tools that I use in Canada. So it's all free and all you have to do is sign up anywhere over at buildwealthcanada.ca. You can do so in many places, even just right on the front page, just so that I know where to send you the free ticket once they become available. All right, so I look forward to seeing you there. And now let's get into the show. All right, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Awesome. So to anybody that's maybe new to the investing world and hasn't heard of you guys yet, can you start by telling us a bit about your backgrounds? Okay, I guess I'll go first. Uh, So I'm John Chevro, Jonathan Chevro. In this project, I'm really sort of herding cats. We have eight ETF experts, the Money Sense ETF All-Stars, which I think we're in our eighth or ninth year. So I would consider myself a financial blogger, author, uh, financial journalist, um, but I certainly don't have, like Ben and a lot of the panelists, CFAs and all these great credentials. But I have written a few books. I, actually, I started, the ETF thing started when I was at the Financial Post, when I, which I joined in 1993. Uh, I did for five years, I did the mutual fund guide, which we called smart funds. So at some point, I sort of realized that smart funds was an oxymoron. And uh, eventually, through um, ended up discovering ETFs, primarily through the Wealthy Boomer discussion forum, which is ancient history. Um, there was a book I wrote, Wealthy Boomer, and the most recent ones is Independence Day and Victory Lap Retirement, which I wrote with a banker, uh, Mike Drack. Other than that, I was the editor of Money Sense for, uh, for two years after I left the post in, 19, in 2012. It was during that time that I got to know Dan Bordelotti before he was at PWL, where Ben is. And we came up with a couple of features, but the one we're talking about was ETF All-Stars, which initially Dan wrote. Uh, at some point, I left, ET- I left Money Sense full-time, but still write for them. And I launched the Financial Independence Hub, uh, independencehub.com. And the rest is history. So I still we still do this yearly event every spring, right during tax time. So everybody's really busy with their clients' uh, tax returns. That's enough about me. Your uh, your cat herding abilities, John, are impressive. When when we do the All Stars call, <laughs> I could tell half the time you guys don't want to hear from me that that because you got like five clients saying, "What about my taxes?" Anyway, <laughs> uh, well, we we get it done every year. Yeah, we do. Uh, so I, I'm Ben Felix, a portfolio manager at PWL Capital. Like uh, like John mentioned, we're a wealth management firm in Canada. We use low-cost funds and uh, ETFs to build client portfolios and, and provide uh, other other financial advice. In addition to portfolio management, kind of a, what you would call wealth management as a, as a catch-all wrapper term. I also have a podcast called The Rational Reminder, a YouTube channel, Common Sense Investing. Like John also mentioned, I kind of did the, the CFA and the MBA and all that. Uh, educational stuff before starting at, at PWL, actually some of it while, while at PWL. Uh, yeah, so that's that's me. 
Awesome. Thanks, guys. And John, can you tell us a bit more about this annual initiative that you lead in determining the best ETFs in Canada for money sense? Well, I guess the idea was sort of like, uh, I mean, the first thing was we didn't want to have something like, I mean, there's so many of these new, and we do talk about them, uh, theme ETFs, et cetera. But what we wanted to do was have something that a, an actual advisor like PWL would do. I don't believe they're going like, okay, this year we're going to dump all your ETFs for the brand new ones. Uh, we'll get into the Desert Island funds where we do actually slink in some of those newer stuff because things do change. But for the most part, we were looking to, to create a portfolio which buy and hold invested it would be low cost broadly diversified we tend not to go with sectors and themes and, and ge even geographical i mean some of the best picks are ones that span either all of north america or indeed the globe a single one as you know like an asset allocation etf could hold you know 10,000, 12,000 securities, you don't really need more than a couple of these things. Uh, so that was the idea. Every once in a while, something would sort of like was a paradigm shift. I think the asset allocation ETFs that initially Vanguard produced uh, three or four years ago um, sort of was shook us up a bit. And, and then, the all, of course, everybody else joined in, the, all the other biggies like uh, iShares and uh, BMO and Horizons, to, to name three, to come to mind. Um, so that was the general idea. So basically, buy and hold. Uh, I, I would bore the panel every year by saying, we can end this right now. I'll just say, yes, we're going to take every pick from last year is coming back as an all-star this year. Thank you very much. We'll see you next year. In fact, this... That, that doesn't quite happen because there are reasons to make minor changes and tweaks. Um, and, and, and in the end, it grew to like 50 all-stars. So, you know, in a universe of what is it, Ben, 800 or 1,000 ATFs trading on Canadian exchanges, even 50 is a bit of a job to, to whittle it down to that much. So that's the story. Great. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that because, yeah, definitely I want people to get the right impression that this isn't some, oh, you're going to, talk about these, some highly speculative ones that you're very bullish on. And, you know, and it gets into that. This is more, you know, passive investing through ETFs. It's more for those kinds of investors. We're not, you know, we're not, this isn't for day traders or anything like that. So I definitely think it's, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned uh, that piece for sure. And yeah, for anybody that wants to follow along by viewing the whole list of all the top ETFs from John and the panel, you can go to buildwealthcanada.ca slash money sense, all one word, and that will auto redirect you to the full guide on the Money Sense site. The full link on the Money Sense site is kind of long. So I basically did this sort of easy to remember link. So you can just go there and you can basically follow along with this and see the whole list. Uh, it's all free. There's no email required on the Money Sense site and you can access it right now uh, if you'd like. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca slash money sense, all one word for anybody that wants to follow along. So John, moving on, how does voting work among the panelists before an ETF is admitted as one of Money Sense's top ETFs in Canada? Okay, well, we call this voting. Like, we basically have some spreadsheets that we sort of circulate by email. I mean, some years we would use uh, the Slack tool, although people were pretty slack this year about using Slack. So it was really e e emails. And what we had, the idea was four teams of, of four pairs. So in the case of PWL, uh, it's Ben, Felix, plus uh, his partner, um, Cameron Passmore. Replacing, I guess it used to be Dan and uh, and Justin Bender also at at, uh, at PWL. I was really happy when the one pair left, but they they replaced them because I think PWL was 
right on top of this. Uh, similarly, um, we have a couple of bloggers uh, which were teamed up. So, so we have uh, Dale Roberts and uh, Rob Engine from Boomer and Echo. Dale Roberts has cut the crap investing. So we've teamed those two people. And then we had uh, E. Rabate, who uh, launched the ETFinsight.ca, and he's another CFA. So the idea, though, was four teams of two. So internally, Ben and Cameron would, would debate. So the idea was you only had to, in herding cats, I, I was looking for basically four sets of double votes. So usually PWL hopefully can agree among themselves. And so they'll have a united front. Basically, you, you have to have five votes out of eight. I, I, as I said, I don't consider myself purely qualified to do this, but in the case of a tie, a four-four tie, where basically there were two team, two teams of, of for four votes here, and the other four are saying no, then I would say, okay, then we're, I get the, the tiebreaker. But generally speaking, that hardly ever happens. I think it did happen this year with Horizons, where we some people wanted one of the Horizons ETF, ETF all uh, one decision funds, asset allocation ETFs. And I just said, well, it makes it's just a tie. It makes sense to have the whole team, since in the case of Vanguard and all the other guys, we had um, the whole suite of products. So that's basically how it works. Great. And, and John, when you and the panelists, and you already answered this question a bit, when you're evaluating what the best ETFs in Canada are, you know, what what is that goal strategy that you are all focused on, and what kind of investor is this for? You already kind of touched on this. How this isn't for you know for day traders or anything like that. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Anything more to add? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, let's face it, there's a lot of information on, on the internet on ETFs and, and you, can, you can't open up the daily newspapers these days without, I see three or four pieces on ETFs. So it's, it's an embarrassment of riches. I mean, whether or not ETFs have replaced mutual funds, it certainly seems like they're gradually taking more and more market share from them. In fact, you even see like Franklin Templeton is a mutual fund company, but now they have ETFs and the same thing with uh, Invesco. So you're sort of seeing a sort of convergence. Um, so I guess the main thing is, do do we assume they have, um, our re- the readers of Money Sense have financial advisors? Some do, some don't. There's certainly a lot of do-it-yourself investors. And uh, as we know, I mean, all you, you, you could just buy a, a one decision uh, asset allocation ETF. I think uh, Rob Engine, for example, picked, VEQT, the Vanguard's 100% uh, equities, and that's going to do pretty well the whole job for him, 15,000 securities or 12,000, whatever it is. And he probably recommends that for his advice, his uh, paying customers, because he's a fee-only advisor. Uh, on the other hand, somebody could buy that fund, one fund, $10 purchase at any of the big, you know, RBC Direct or TD Waterhouse um, as a do-yourself investor. Theoretically, you could say, that's all I need. I'm not going to make a change until I retire 30 years from now. <laughs> and I paid a brokerage one, once, $10, to buy one fund, and it's going to distribute everything else. And so, so it can be that easy. In practice, I think people want a little more fun, and that's why we, we talk about some of the theme funds. Even if they're not chosen by the panel overall, we'll discuss it in the body of the, the Money Sense overview, and then we'll get into the Desert Island funds too, which is another sort of exception to the rule. For sure. Yeah. And I definitely suggest everybody check out the the guy because like you said, you do dive into some of those other ones a little bit in more detail. I recall you had the low volatility ones, for example, and and, this, and some other ones as well. So yeah, definitely definitely some good good reading just to kind of get a sense of what, what's out there for sure. And then lastly, before we get into the results, what should someone do if they are holding a past top pick 
and now they no longer see that pick on this year's list. In other words, when should we actually really consider swapping to a completely different ETF if we already have a good diversified passive index portfolio in place? Well, I, I, I think people overestimate. I mean, this is a, eight people's opinions or four teams. And uh, just because uh, it's no longer number the, one of the 50 we pick, I mean, it might be the 52nd best ETF in Canada. Who knows? I mean, I think it's common sense here. If the, the fund is doing well, it's doing what you thought it was going It's not like anybody's suddenly going to double their MER and, right. and it becomes inappropriate from that point of view. You may, maybe there's a, a, a sea change. And I suppose COVID was a sea change. And uh, you, you, you may want to make some major changes in asset allocation. I mean, perhaps you've decided that uh, because interest rates are going to go up, that all of a sudden these conservative uh, asset allocation ETS with a lot of long bonds, maybe those aren't quite as safe as you once thought. And so then what do you do about that? Do you switch out of the all, uh, the all-in-one fund and go to the, because the, in the case of Vanguard, for example, you have a couple of short-term bond ETFs that are five years or under for most, most of the uh, bond holdings. So you can start to kind of take apart our picks which is what I guess I guess Ben can talk about that in the case of Avantis and some of these specialties. So I wouldn't I, I would hope that people sort of this is a guidebook. It's a start. It's a starting point to discuss with your advisor or to do your own research. I mean, I, I doubt there's anybody that actually only uses our picks in the moment it's no longer a pick. They they jettison it. I mean, it would be great if we were that powerful, but I don't <laughs> think so. <laughs> right. Yeah, it helps narrow down the list from the thousands that are out there. At least now it's a little bit narrow. But yeah, I think it's worth mentioning that because I definitely don't want someone to fall into the trap of you know they see that list and they think something in my portfolio that's no longer the top pick, should I do this massive change and you know sell? You know, it could be like a six-figure portfolio and now they sell and they replace it with something else. And maybe the only reason that it got switched was because one of the firms you know, dropped their MER slightly and they offer a comparable portfolio. And so now that one's the top pick, right? So I just kind of wanted to have that warning for people to not throw the baby with the bathwater or whatever that expression is, where they just kind of see one little change, and then all of a sudden do these massive drastic changes to the portfolio, make sure you actually understand why you're making that change. It's not like you said, it's not like one ETF was a top pick with one year, and then they all of a sudden doubled your, their MER the next year. That doesn't really happen. So it's not like the ETF is now a horrible decision. Maybe there's just some better, newer ones out there that, that are worth considering. That's all. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure Ben has some thoughts on the one we just discussed. If he does, fire away, Ben. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the one of the big things to keep in mind is that the ETF landscape is very competitive. So it can very easily happen that from one year to the next, one ETF looks better than another for some reason. Maybe it's fees, maybe it's the underlying portfolio construction, maybe it's the tax structure of the fund in terms of how it's set up. But as soon as one fund company makes an improvement, the other ones are incentivized to match that. And we've seen that with international developed ETFs, for example, uh, iShares made the switch to holding securities directly because that improved tax efficiency. And all of a sudden, XEF was the best international developed holding in Canada, but it wasn't long before Vanguard did the same thing and changed their underlying structure. So if someone had switched from Vanguard or from uh, iShares to Vanguard because of that, then a couple of years later, I can't remember exactly how long it was when they made the change, but um, not long afterwards, you end up being in the exact same place. And maybe you triggered a tax uh, a taxable event to make the change. So I, I I would change very slowly. We saw the same thing. We, we produced model portfolios uh, and we changed them this year pretty materially from what they were last year. We got the same question a lot. 
but I think it comes back to the spirit of of how this thing is being, how the voting is being defined. Like the, the question that you asked John a minute ago, the, the idea here is that the panelists are trying to present a set of building blocks for portfolios that are going to give people a pretty good investment experience. I think any, any of the picks where all the panelists have decided, yep, yeah, we all agree that the, this is a good holding. Any of them are going to be pretty good holdings and switching back and forth between them is probably the worst thing that uh, that you can do. Definitely. Yeah. Especially when we start factoring in trading costs, whether the bid-ask spreads, the commissions, like you said, if it's in a taxable account, they may, may actually not be triggering a taxable event. So yeah, there, there's all these sort of negatives to it. And if you're just kind of blindly switching it because one ETF maybe changed something minor, that's probably not worth it. I remember there was, I think it was a few years ago where there was this massive sort of price war between the major providers where it seemed like every month there was a new news story about, okay, this ETF, you know, from Vanguard lowered its MER and then iShares follows the next month and they're just, you know, matching each other and trying to kind of, you know, it was kind of like a race to the bottom. And so if you sort of act too quickly, <laughs> as soon as you see some headline, if you just waited a month, they would have matched it anyway. And so you just missed out and, and you actually incurred potentially some unnecessary costs. So uh, yeah, so thanks guys for, for pointing that out because yeah, I don't want anyone to do anything too too drastic without you know actually making sure their the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. I frequently get asked which ETFs do we personally hold in our investment portfolio and why did I choose those specific ETFs? So to answer that, I created an in-depth guide to explain what ETFs my wife and I held and continue to hold as we move through the different phases of being first a dual-income family to pulling off an early retirement in our 30s and now transitioning to being semi-retired where we just run the podcast and the summit. So these ETFs are literally where we have almost our entire net worth apart from our house and is what we are primarily living off right now in our early semi-retirement. So I figure at the very least, you'll learn about some great ETFs to consider for your portfolio in addition to the Money Sense top ETFs that we're talking about today in the interview. And if you are new to ETFs, then it'll give you a nice list of some top ETFs to consider from the thousands that are out there. So I'm making this guide available for free to any listeners that use my special link to sign up for a free savings account with the bank that I personally use, EQ Bank. Now, the reason I personally use EQ Bank is that they have one of the highest interest savings rates in Canada. Their interest rate that they pay you is as much as 125 times higher compared to the other major banks in Canada. I mean, it's it's no contest. It's also free to sign up and keep an account with them. So you're not paying a monthly fee like you do with many of the other banks out there. You also get unlimited transactions, unlimited interactions e-transfers and can take out your money at any time if you need it and there are no minimum balances they also have free tfsa and rrsp accounts as well as free usd accounts if you want to earn a nice bit of interest on your us currency too so because of those reasons i've been with them ever since they launched in canada years ago even before they became a sponsor of the show and it's where i keep my entire emergency fund and spending money Basically, just about everything of mine that isn't being invested in ETFs goes directly into my EQ Bank account to earn me that high interest. So to get the free high interest account and the free guide on the top ETFs in Canada that I invest in, you have to use a special link, which is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash the letter E and the letter Q. Once you go there, open the free account, and when you're done, forward any confirmation email that you get from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. And I'll send you the full comprehensive guide for free. So that link again is buildwealthcanada.ca slash EQ to open an account. And you have to use that specific link to get the bonus. And then forward me any email from EQ to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca. And I'll email you the free in-depth guide. 
So enjoy. Thanks for supporting the show in that way. It helps a lot. And now let's get back into the episode. Um, okay, well, that said, let's jump into the the results. So let's start off with the US ETFs. And yeah, again, anybody for wanting to follow along, uh, buildwealthcanada.ca slash money is where you can actually see all these. And and John, you know, and the team at Money Sense, they put a nice table there so you can actually see all of them uh, along with some explanations. So definitely, uh, definitely check that out. And I noticed that all of seven, all seven of last year's picks have been retained. And in the guide, it was mentioned that the ETF VUN was highly endorsed by the panel. Can you guys elaborate on why you think that was? Uh, I'll start very briefly and then punt it over to, to Ben, because I think it, this came from PWL in the first place. Uh, my understanding was it was a total, primarily a total market ETF, VUN, uh, so it owned small caps, medium cap, large cap stocks. It would have hold, you know, 3,500 stocks, which is, you know, basically the total total U.S. market. The fee was maybe 0.16 MER. Other than that, over to Ben. Yeah, so it, de- definitely a t- total market U.S. equity holding, which is which is great as a building block for a for a portfolio. The, the The reason that it was a compelling pick this year specifically is that XUU, which is the iShares competitor to to this U.S. total market product, had a had a bit of an issue uh, in 2020, where because of the way that they've structured the the underlying holdings of the fund. They ended up with some pretty significant tracking error just due to the market volatility that we had with the uh, with the pandemic. Uh, basically, the way that they had it set up was uh, with instead of holding ITOT, which is the the U.S. listed U.S. total market ETF that that uh, BlackRock produces, uh, instead of just holding that, they had constructed it the Canadian version by holding three underlying ETFs: a, a small, mid, and a large cap holding. Should be fine. Uh, or over the long term, you're still getting the same roughly market exposures, but because of the volatility, it was hard for them to maintain the exact exposures to the actual U.S. total market, uh, just with uh, frictions in terms of rebalancing. So they ended up with pretty significant tracking error in the in the calendar year 2020, which is a big problem for an ETF. The the whole idea is to track the market, and if the ETF's not doing that, it's not doing its job. So relative to XUU, VUN looks pretty good based on based on what happened. Now, that being said, XUU or, or I guess iShares is fully aware of the of the issue. They're fully, fully aware of the tracking error problem. I think as of 2019, they'd already started to transition toward uh, holding ITOT as the main holding for for the fund. Uh, the, the, the challenge is that because of the because it's all held inside of a Canadian ETF, if they went and sold all of the underlying holdings in a single year, all of the existing ETF unit holders would have a big capital gains distribution. And iShares figures that the investors probably don't want that. And it's probably true that they don't. So they're aware of the problem. They're looking at ways of resolving it. And in the long run, they'll they'll plan to transition toward holding ITOT. Uh, they've just got to manage that, that tax liability. Other than that, VUN and XUU are very comparable. XUU is actually cheaper in terms of the MER cost. It's basically a bet on choosing one or the other is basically a bet on how efficient is BlackRock going to be at resolving the tracking error issue in XUU. And the other piece of that is the thing that we were just talking about with with fees. Uh, VUN or or Vanguard, there's a pretty good chance they lower the MER, which is currently higher uh, than XUUs, but there's a pretty good chance, at least if we look at the historical data on fund fees, that at some point in the near term, VUN matches the, the fee of XUU and we may be indifferent. 
So, which, mean, which means they have to cut it from 15 to about seven basis points to uh, to match uh, mm-hmm. high shares there. It's ir- ironic because usually Vanguard is sort of the price leader, but in this case, for a long shares. time they were. But BlackRock they got so aggressive on on fees when when uh, index investing and ETF started to pick up. Yeah. So anyway, I, I we we pushed for VUN uh, this year because of the tracking error issues that XUU had. Realistically, though, they're both great holdings. They're both super low cost. You're getting market exposure in both cases. And even though XU had this tracking error problem, it's something that BlackRock is fully aware of. And if anybody can figure out how to resolve it uh, over the next little while, mm-hmm. it's going to be it's going to be them. I mean, this is this is what they do. They implement index funds. So it sounds like maybe the lesson is if someone's really stuck on choosing one versus the other to maybe not overthink it because on the Vanguard side, there is a good chance that, or let's say somebody already owns a lot of UN and they're thinking, should I switch over? It sounds like the answer is, well, well, no, because first of all, it's not that big of a difference in terms of absolute dollars. You're still paying a very low MER. And if you look at historic, historically what's happened, there's a good chance that they're actually going to match the price of iShares. And then on the iShares side, like you said, it seems like they're aware of it. They're in the process of resolving it. So it's not like somebody should make this sweeping change to the portfolio where you know they, they sell hundreds of thousands of dollars of one to buy the other. Uh, would that be fair to say, do you think? Yeah, again, I, I would move very slowly on any any big portfolio changes like that, especially based on one data point like the one that we're that we're talking about. That mm-hmm. I pointed out the tracking error as an issue. I think a lot of people were worried about it. Um, and actually I didn't discover this issue. It was our PWL's research department pointed out to to us as uh, as advisors and and uh but I when I spoke about it on our podcast and things like that, a lot of people got got very concerned and were asking a lot of questions. Realistically, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's not a good thing that that happened, but because BlackRock is aware of the situation and they have a good plan for resolving it, I don't think it's that big of a deal in in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I think a lot of individual investors self-directed, they'll probably tend to be in the Vanguard camp or the iShares. If you're comfortable, you have a whole bunch of Vanguard funds for whatever reason, then you'd probably still go with VUN. But if you're if you're an iShares person, um, the same same thing. I don't think you know, this tracking error thing, certainly I would never have noticed it. It's something that PWL would. To me, it's not a deal breaker at all. But. And just to give some context to the listeners and the viewers, the difference in MER on a $100,000 portfolio, uh, that's about $80 per year that you would be paying more currently for the Vanguard fund versus the, the iShare. So it's not some you know enormous amount. You're still getting a very good MER, like we said. And then, yeah, I guess we'll have to see next year whether they start uh, price matching a little bit more on the MER side, especially once iShares gets things resolved on their end as well. Um, so that's great, guys. Thanks so much for your input because I can see a lot of investors wrestling with that. And I know I've gotten that question from quite a few listeners as well. So so thank you for addressing that. Let's uh, switch gears now and talk about international. Can we talk about some of the panel's top international picks while also addressing that overlap that exists depending on the ETF someone chooses? Yeah, well, I think uh, it seems like XAW was the... Uh was the one that everybody seemed to, I, I was thinking of one of, oh, Mark Seed is one of our new panelists. I probably forgot to say, <laughs> the person I forgot when I, oh, that's right, yeah. because every, every once in a while, we, people leave the panel, we have to replace them. And Mark, uh, who does uh, my own advisor, he's sort of very much focused on uh, a do-it-yourself uh, with a sort of a hybrid of, of stocks and uh, individual stocks, dividend-paying stocks, plus ETFs. Uh, and I think he and, and his partner, I think he was, was he teamed with um, uh, Eve? 
So that team, I think they're quite keen on XAW, uh, just because it's basically when talk about all in one, but we're talking all equities here, not asset allocation. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, Ben, but I think XAW is everything but Canada. Uh, so it's emerging markets, US, EV, Europe, um, Asia, you name it, Japan, China. Talk about one-stop one stop shopping. In theory, what else do you need? You A bit of fixed income and, you're, and a Canadian equity fund and, that, and you're done. So even so, we did have other, uh, what do we have? We had other international uh, picks as well. I have to go check my, my list here. Yeah, of course, Vanguard and iShares, as usual, XEF. And uh, in fact, I think we had three Vanguard funds, including the, uh, a FTSE fund developed in emerging markets. Um, I guess Ben can talk about whether it's better to have one giant, the whole world fund, or should you be overweighting emerging markets and focusing on EV and US? So over to you, Ben. Uh, it depends on what kind of control you want over the portfolio. Like like you were mentioning, John, XAW is a is a fantastic holding, and and likewise uh, VXC, which is the Vanguard sort of I- equivalent. Uh, both both nice nice holdings where you're getting the global market, and in one case, it's the MSCI All Country World Index from iShares, excluding Canada, and then in Vanguard's case, they use FTSE indexes, so you're getting the global All Cap X Canada. But like you were saying, John, you you that gives you a, a, a one single holding for the world X Canada, and so you can control how much home bias, if any, you want to have with your Canadian holding, or in the case of some some of the panelists, and, and this isn't what I would be suggesting to do, but some of our panelists might have been using individual stocks for the Canadian allocation and, and uh, using the global ETF to get some some international exposure. So I think it does give you a lot of flexibility from that perspective. You might though want to split that up into. Uh, the the un, some of the underlying holdings, if uh, and again, this is something not something that I would suggest. But if you wanted to do any overweighting or underweighting within international and emerging markets, then obviously you wouldn't just use the single the single holding. And likewise for uh, withholding tax minimization, in some cases you may want to use a U.S. listed equivalent of, for example, XEF. Uh, inside of uh, an, an RSP account to reduce withholding tax, and again, in that case, you wouldn't be using XA, XAW. Yeah, but but it, there's there's always this trade off between simplicity and optimization, and I can't tell anybody where the the right place to land on that spectrum is. The same conversation applies to the asset allocation ETFs, where you can buy one holding, uh, like John was mentioning at the beginning. Uh, and it gives you a beautiful globally diversified portfolio that's automatically rebalanced, which is amazing. But you could save a little bit on fees and withholding taxes if you split it up and did it did all the implementation yourself. Some people love that stuff, uh, and I think it actually excites a lot of people, and they find it to be a bit of a hobby. But for a lot of people, it's miserable, and in, in that case, they're better off holding the single the single fund. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. One thing I'll mention real quick, just because I can see it being a common error that maybe some beginner investors might run into is just to be careful of the overlap as well. Like when we're talking about XAW, which is uh, basically everything except Canada and except um, bonds, you got to be careful to also then not say, okay, now I'm also going to be, let's say, buy VUN because I want some US exposure. Well, the US index is already included in that XAW. And so now you're sort of you know, increasing your weight in the US portion of your portfolio, but perhaps un- unknowingly. So just be really careful what you're buying so you actually know what it includes so that you're not sort of double dipping into the different geographies uh, accidentally. And now your you know, asset allocation is off and it's not what you want it to be. Uh, would that be fair to say, guys? 
Well, sure. I mean, obviously, if you have XAW and you've got the whole world taken care of, then to go back and to our Canadian and U.S. equity ETF lists, you're going to you're introducing some redundancy. So it's sort of one or the other. Are you going to kind of mix and match? You're going to have pick your Canadian, pick your U.S., your EV and emerging markets. Are you going to say to heck with it? I don't know what to do. XAW is going to take a care of it for me. And uh, because I don't already own lots of Canadian bank stocks, I'd, I'll worry about Canadian securities separately. I'll, I'll give you another issue that that uh, can easily be missed by people that are just getting started in, in investing. I, I mentioned that Vanguard and iShares use different index providers, MSCI and, and FTSE, MSCI for iShares and FTSE for, for Vanguard. They, they don't see everything the same way. The biggest example is South Korea, where uh, in one case, it's considered a developed market, and in one case, it's considered an emerging market. The implication is that if you mix together uh, if you mix together a developed market fund from iShares with an emerging market fund from Vanguard or vice versa, you can end up with, uh, with, with an asset allocation problem where you're not getting market weights of South Korea. By by mixing those two providers, so if you're going to use a, a developed market and an emerging market fund t- together to get your desired uh, allocation to international stocks, it's important to use them from a company that uses the same index provider. Gotcha. Good point. In fact, I personally had owned VEE probably because the panels like we originally picked it years ago, uh, the Vanguard Emerging Markets Fund, and, uh, and I realized after a while, like I I, I liked. The idea that it would own Samsung, and then I realized, hold on, it doesn't own Samsung in Korea, South Korea because the E doesn't own it. So therefore, you have to go. And then, as Ben knows, it's very hard to own Samsung even as an ADR. You actually have to go and find a, a I think it's an iShares South Korea ETF if you really value, you know, this alternative to Apple, which is a Samsung. Now, yes, you got. Kia Motors and all this other Korean stuff, uh, vehicles, but uh, it, it it does get kind of messy, which is, I guess you could say that's the, the case for the all global funds. It, for, it's a case for the all global funds. It all, that, that issue also goes away with XAW uh, and, and VXC because they're doing the allocation to developed and emerging markets for you inside that wrapper. I think it's when you start trying to do them individually, uh, that's where you've got to be really careful about, about which index provider the fund is, is uh, using. So Ben, you're saying, make sure I understand, let's say you decide, okay, I'm going to do iShares for my international developed international emerging markets. In that case, you do something like XEC and XCF. You have those kind of, you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to stick with iShares for that. Or you do the Vanguard equivalent, but then you're choosing the two Vanguard one international developed one emerging as opposed to mixing and matching among the providers. Is that correct? Yeah. That's okay. exactly correct. The, I mean, the problem we, you can see it on the in the description on the uh, the Money Sense article. It says right on there for for VIU Vanguard FTSE Developed All Cap uh, X North America, which is Vanguard's equivalent to XTF. It includes South Korea, whereas VEE the the Vanguard uh, Emerging Markets All Cap Index excludes South Korea. And then if you go to the iShares world, it's flipped mm-hmm. where. Well, it's flipped. So if you mix and match between the two providers, you end up with a problem. And now a quick break to tell you about some of the resources you may find helpful on our Build Wealth Canada site. 
Hey everyone, I just wanted to give you an update on one of the free investing tools that I use to see how my investments are doing. And I also use this tool to make sure that I never make any mistakes when rebalancing my portfolio. So if you want to check it out and follow along, it's over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash passive. And that link actually also includes instructions on how to get their premium account upgrade for free instead of paying the $99 a year. So in case you've never heard of them before, passive is essentially a tool that you can use to see all your investing accounts in one place. If you're already a DIY investor, then you know this is a big deal since typically everyone has at least three investing accounts. So an RRSP, a TFSA, and a taxable account. And if you have a partner, that's six accounts that you now have to manage as part of your household. So it's an incredible annoyance to have to sign in and out of different accounts just to see how your portfolio is doing and just to buy some investments. So one of the main reasons that I love using Passive is that in one click, I can see exactly how my portfolio is doing as a whole across all our accounts without having to log into each individual account. And in two clicks, I can actually see in-depth reporting on how our household portfolio is doing across all our accounts, across different timeframes. I can see how much I can expect in dividends during the next payout, how much I contributed, how much my investments have grown over different time periods and much more. And it's all synchronized with your brokerage. So you don't have to manually enter any of this information like with some of the other tools out there. And And the other big deal is that they can automatically rebalance your portfolio for you. But even if you'd rather do it yourself, they show you exactly what trades you need to do to rebalance. So rebalancing holds many new investors back, I find. It's not easy for everyone. You know, there's math you got to do. Not everyone's an Excel person. So so I get that. So this is a great tool that actually makes it easy. But even though I've personally been investing for many years now, I actually still like to use the rebalancing feature to basically double check my math to make sure that I didn't make any mistakes while calculating how much to buy and sell when I'm rebalancing my portfolio. So I definitely recommend you check them out. Like I said, you can get the free upgrade to their premium account by going over to buildwealthcanada.ca slash passive. I seriously doubt this free upgrade is going to be around forever. So I would recommend at least kind of lock it in while you can. Now, regarding the new features I mentioned, I found them really useful as you can now choose which ETFs to buy in each account, which means you can have passive buy and rebalance the ETFs that are the most tax efficient for each of your accounts. So obviously very positive because you want to make sure you've got the right ETFs and the right accounts to get the greatest tax efficiency. You can also now group your investments into classes. So let's say you have several different ETFs that represent the US market, like I do, for example. You can now group them and Passive will tell you if you are overweight or underweight based on the asset allocation that you said you wanted. So in other words, letting you know in a couple of mouse clicks if you have strayed from the asset allocation that you want and telling you exactly how much you need to buy or sell to get back on track. So yeah, definitely you know check out their help guide if you're interested especially in these new advanced features that i just mentioned Uh, and again if you're new to passive and you want that free upgrade you can get the instructions on how to get it over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash passive so enjoy that i'm a huge fan of these guys thanks to the many many hours that their tool has saved me and it's actually making diy investing even more fun uh, because it kind of removes all those tedious things that you have to deal with as a diy investor and it actually makes it sort of enjoyable and it automates a lot of these sort of repetitive parts that are easy to make a mistake with so yeah definitely check them out Uh, take advantage of that free premium account upgrade as well as i I doubt it's going to be around forever so um, again that's over at buildwealthcanada.com ca slash passive to get all the instructions on how to get that free upgrade all right and now back to the show 
I see the ETF XEC mentioned a lot for emerging markets exposure, and I actually hold it as well. And I see Ben has it in his model portfolio on the Rational Reminder website. Was there any mention of it in the panel? Uh, usually I see it used together with XCF, the International Developed Markets ETF. You know, it, it didn't come up in the panel. And uh, I was, was chatting to John about that uh, when, when we saw your notes. Uh, and it, it, it should probably be on there. Uh, for 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 next year, I think we'll uh, I think we'll probably add it to the list. Um, I, I can't actually tell you why why it didn't make it. Yeah, well, it just shows it's it's, it's such a, a torrent of information to process, especially at tax time. <laughs> some some things maybe slip between the cracks, but we'll definitely put it on the the list for next year for sure. Awesome. And yeah, Ben, one negative I noticed about XTC is that it's structured in a non-optimal way where uh, us Canadians end up paying basically two layers of withholding tax. And I recall one of your colleagues, Justin Bender, also from PWL Capital, mentioning that ZDM is an alternative that is more efficiently structured from a withholding tax perspective. But it has a higher tracking error compared to the ETF we chose, XEC. So basically, it's kind of similar, I guess, maybe to the US conversation we already had. In this case, we are left deciding whether we want the tax savings of ZDM at the expense of dealing with a higher tracking error. How big of a deal is the larger tracking error? And what is the thought process that we should have to help us decide between the two? So I, I think I'll start by pushing back on the premise of the question. Okay. Uh, XEC is structured in a way where you do end up with an additional layer of withholding tax relative to a fund that holds securities directly. Mm -hmm. But that may be optimal. And I'll explain what I mean oh, by that. Okay. BlackRock is, or iShares is, they're, they're, they're building products. They're, they want to build good products. They want to build good competitive products that people want to own. To implement uh, an emerging markets product is much more expensive than to implement one that holds Canadian uh, or or U.S. or even developed market stocks uh, custody when you when you own emerging markets or or developed market stocks custody has to be taken care of in each country custody is like who actually owns the underlying stocks where do they sit custody for emerging markets is very expensive so for a, a fund like XCC which isn't that big well it's it's a it's a billion dollars now so it's it's not small um, but it's relatively recently was not that big of a big of a fund to build it holding securities directly, the costs just on custody because of the relatively small scale of the fund might make it, well, probably would, and this is why it's structured the way that it is, would make the cost of owning it uh, just as high or, or, or higher than the withholding tax cost that we pay by holding the US listed ETF. So iShares is looking at this. They're, they're again, they're fully aware of this as a, as a problem. If it becomes obvious that holding securities directly is going to be overall more cost efficient for the unit holders, then it's something that I'm sure they would consider doing. I, I don't know if they're actually going to do this anytime soon. Uh, it's going to depend on that trade-off between costs uh, costs versus withholding taxes. ZEM, and we, we kind of see this maybe, where, where on implementation is done a little bit differently. Uh, they do hold a lot of individual securities. They occasionally hold ETFs too, but they don't take the same, they're not tracking the same index. Uh, they're tracking an index that has uh, large and mid caps, whereas XEC is tracking an investable market index, which has large, mid and small caps. Other than that, I mean, they're both emerging market funds. So XEC is a little bit more diversified. But then you also mentioned tracking error with ZEM, which is another one of the implications from the way that they're executing on the, on the strategy. So is one better than the other? That's really hard to say. In terms of net of cost expected returns, 
I, I can't say that it's obvious that one's better than the other. I mean, from XEC, you're going to collect a little bit more of the of the small cap premium, which historically has existed around the world. Uh, you're not going to get that with ZDM because it's completely excluding small caps. Now, what does that trade-off look like? Do you expect the size premium in XEC to offset the withholding tax costs that you're that you're incurring? Uh, not, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. Um, and then the other big question is: Will iShares eventually amend the structure of XEC to hold the securities directly? And again, I don't have the answer to that question. I don't know if if we asked iShares, I don't know if they would have the answer to the question either. Um, because the other friction is that now XEC, XEC is a fairly large fund with a lot of holders. And if they went kind of like we talked about with XUU, if they went and did a sweeping change where they sold uh, IEMG, which is what XEC holds now, the existing unit holders would incur a big tax liability at the time that they did that. So will they change it in the future? I don't know. Um, maybe. Is it better or worse than ZEM? I don't think that's obvious when you take all the different factors into account. Um, yeah. So I, 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 I like XEC because it's IMI, Investable Market Index. I know that it's, it's got the withholding tax issue, but I also know that it's set up that way uh, because that's, the, that's what iShares has determined is the most cost-efficient way to do it when you take a, an, into account all costs, withholding taxes uh, and implementation costs. I, I, I'd love to see them amended at some point in the future, uh, but it's, it's un, uncertain whether that's going to happen or not. Mm. That's great. Yeah, thanks for addressing that because I know for myself, you know, we, we used, I have XCF as well, and I see that, and I, my understanding is that one is actually optimized sort of efficiently from that withholding tax perspective. And so then you look at XCC, and one wonders, well, why isn't that one then that way? Maybe there's an alternative that I should have instead. Um, so yeah, so I mean, thank you for for clearing that up. I I think it's worth it's worth mentioning that the custody costs, and I think I did already mention this, but the custody costs for emerging markets are going to be higher than for developed markets. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the reasons that XEF, that, that they did make that change in 2014, I think is when iShares went to holding securities directly in XEF. The other thing is yields, where yields in uh, emerging markets aren't typically as high as developed markets. So if you have a, a high withholding tax cost on a relatively low yield, it's not as big of a deal. Whereas with XEF, if they've got a much higher yield, um, there, there's a bigger incentive to, to make the change, which is exactly what they what they did. Gotcha. I know. Well, yeah. So thanks for sharing uh, for sharing that. Let, let's jump to the Canadian side of things. It looks like the top core picks are unchanged from last year. The top core holdings that uh, you guys had in the panel um, basically was VCN, which is the Vanguard version, XIC, the iShares version, and ZCN, the BMO version. Is there any one that was preferred over another? And if so, why? Here again, I think you end up in the Vanguard camp or the iShares camp. You know, there's a lot of BMO fans. I mean, BMO is a pretty powerful BMO ETFs. So, uh, you know, you, I don't think we had uh, personally. I like the equal weight approach that BMO is really good at equal weight ETFs. In the case of the th- these three front runners, uh, I don't think that they're, they're. In fact, to me, they're all virtually the same. The, the, the cost, I, I think, all three of them are five or six basis points for the MER. Um, they all own um, more or less. You look at the top ten holdings; it's more or less the same. You know, you got Shopify up there, and then Royal Bank, and the, the usual suspects. Um, the number of holdings varies a little bit. Maybe two hundred hold Canadian stocks, plus or minus twenty, depending on which fund. Uh, again, it's not a deal breaker whether one holds one hundred eighty or two. 
20 in my case, in, in my opinion, um, I, I think it comes down to your, your comfortable, sort of like what we were talking about with Ben before, if, you're more likely to have a consistent approach by sticking to one fund family. If you want to avoid that, what we talked about in emerging markets in South Korea, you know, if you have nothing but iShares funds, then you don't have to worry about it. If you have nothing but Vanguard, same thing. You don't have to worry about it. But I'm sure Ben has some uh, more cogent points to make out here. I, I agree. Between those three funds, they're they're largely, it's a bit of a toss-up. You, you, you maybe would just flip a, flip a coin to make the decision. Uh, I, I would have, up until the middle of last year, probably preferred not to go with VCN. Uh, the reason being that they were tracking an index uh, that had uh, foreign ownership limits on it, meaning that they would they would hold securities not in the weights that Canadian would hold would would view the market cap, but they were holding the securities in the weights that a non-Canadian investor would view Canadian market caps. Uh, and and the way that they would that a foreign investor would think about that is that some Canadian securities have caps on foreign ownership, um, so so you might weight them differently than a Canadian investor would. They changed that though. Uh, VCN changed that in June 2020. Uh, so now they're tracking the FTSE Canada All Cap Domestic Index, uh, which takes away that foreign ownership issue, and that did cause some negative tracking error for the fund at a point in time, I believe, because telecoms uh, did well for a period of time when the fund was underweight because of the foreign ownership limits. So, you know, a year ago, I might have said, uh, I might have said uh, that we'll take VCN out of the mix, but. They, they made that change. I think it was a big improvement. I believe it is still uncapped, whereas the the other ones that we're talking about are capped, meaning that they won't allow more than ten percent of any one stock to to make up the to make up the index. That's has not been a problem since the uh, since the Nortel days. The way Shopify has been going, who knows? Maybe yeah. maybe a capped index starts to become sensible again. Right now, capped and uncapped are going to be uh, the same because there are no securities that make up more than ten percent of the market cap. Uh, yeah. So I, as of right now, probably a toss up. I, I like XIC um, and I don't have a really good reason for that. It's been around for a very, very long time. I think it's the first ETF actually uh, that traded in Canada. I, I, I believe that's true. So I, I yeah, bit, bit, bit of a toss up. I lean toward, toward XIC, but yeah, not, not obvious that one's better than the other. Yeah, I was going to say there's a couple of other funds there that we picked apart from those three because there were, you know, there's about a half dozen of them. Um, when I talk about BMO and equal weight, I, I forgot to say that BMO is also pretty strong on low volatility funds. Uh, for example, ZLB for the Canadian equities. I, uh, I'm pretty sure Ben has, I think, is not as big a fan of. Uh, on the on the panel, it was the uh, Yamada, Mark Yamada, and Iolia at the P- Pure Investing were really big on. They kind of convinced the rest of us. So it took them a couple of years to add some low volatility ETFs. Um, the one other thing is a- again coming from PWL is HXT from Horizons. Mm-hmm. I believe, and a it was very low fees, and and b tax efficient for non-registered investing. So again, while those big three funds we talked about are, are really good for registered portfolios, uh, maybe Ben can explain why HXT is better non-registered. And he can also talk about non low volatility ETFs. For the corporate class funds from Horizons, that's actually something that PWO has not been a, an advocate for. Uh, previously, we were worried about regulatory risk with the swap-based structure that they were using um, without getting too deep into the weeds on that. The, the way that they were doing the funds made them very tax efficient, but we weren't sure that from a regulatory standpoint that they were going to be able to persist that way. That regulatory risk did happen 
the, the risk materialized. And, and fortunately for holders of those funds, Horizons was able to do a bit of a pivot and change the structure to something that is potentially as tax efficient, but with the corporate class structure, and again, don't want to get too into the weeds on this, uh, with the corporate class structure, I think it's a bit of a bet on uh, on Horizon's ability to execute. Uh, basically, they, they need to, within the corporate class structure that they have, uh, they need to have enough losses to offset gains. Now, they have a whole bunch of different funds inside of the, the fund corporation, so maybe they're go- going to be able to do that. But it uh, it makes me a little bit nervous. So I, I, I'm not a fan of those, even though they are, as things are at the moment, tax efficient because of the way that they accrue, uh, they accrue income and gains all as, as deferred capital gains. Um, I'm, I'm just, I, I, it makes me a little bit nervous how well that's going to persist in, into the, into the future based on the new structure that they had to pivot to, right. uh, for low volatility, I, I think, and there's interesting academic debate on this. I think with low volatility, you end up with a set of risk factors, which we're going to talk more about in a in a second, that you're probably better off targeting directly as opposed to through a low volatility product. With low volatility, I think you end up with a relatively concentrated portfolio, which in my opinion is not ideal, and a relatively high turnover uh, portfolio, which uh, again is is not ideal. Plus, the fees tend to be a little bit uh, a little bit higher. So on on low volatility. And I don't know if I, I I know I made commentary on this in last year's All Stars John. I don't know if it was in there uh, this year, but if people want to read more about that, I had some uh, comments for sure in last year's All Stars. We Call. mentioned them in both editions, but yeah, your your initial thoughts and links was was in the 2020 edition as opposed to 20, 2021. Got it. Gotcha. And John, one of the categories that you have in the Money Sense Top ETF Guide is called the Desert Island Picks. Can you explain what that category is? Yeah, well, basically, we crypt that from Motley Fool. I, I write for Motley Fool Canada as well, and they have this feature on their podcasts uh, called Desert Island Stocks. So it's on individual stocks. If you were down a desert island and you couldn't reach your brokerage for five years, what would you feel comfortable holding? Now, I, personally, I wouldn't be hold, I wouldn't be comfortable holding any individual stock on a desert island if I couldn't reach. An ETF makes a lot more sense to me, a broadly diversified ETF uh, on a desert island. So I, we sort of stole the idea. We credited them. And so, uh, and the idea was because we had so much disagreement sometimes, people would get frustrated because, you know, as we said, uh, uh, pure investing was pushing for low volatility ETFs and somebody over here was pushing for something else. So it was a sort of an outlet for people to say, you guys are idiots. Everybody knows this is great. So I'm going to pick, this is my desert island pick and I don't care what Ben and Cameron pick. <laughs> and uh, and so that's what happened. And it's actually, I think it's become kind of a popular feature because you, you get out of this low cost, broadly diversified, it gets a little dull. Uh, so you want to get you know, really sexy. So Dale Roberts said, you know, he, he spec the purpose Bitcoin ETF. <laughs> Would you want to hold a purpose Bitcoin ETF and nothing else on a desert island? I don't think so. But, uh, but anyway, as, as a broad, part of a broadly diversified, who can, you know, it's done, done great. Uh, so let's go over to Ben here. Cause I know uh, personally, I, I, I never even heard of Avantis until he started talking. Actually it was the, the Avantis U S small cap in last year's edition, I think, which was Cameron, correct me if I'm wrong. Over to you, Ben. Yeah. So our, our desert Island picks, I think last year, I think Cameron and I both picked Avantis funds just a, 
maybe I, I had the total market value fund and Cameron had the small cap value. And then this year we went with both small cap value funds, one US and one uh, international developed. Our idea behind that is uh, we the, the way that we think about markets, the, the stock market is that assets assets are priced based on risk. And I, that's maybe pretty intuitive to most people. The, the risk of the stock market as a whole, like beta, people may be familiar with, with that term, is a risk that everybody's familiar with. But for the last 30 or so years, there have been what appear to be other systematic risks that systematically affect asset prices. So as an investor investing in stocks, you can choose to buy a total market ETF, in which case you're getting exposure to the market risk, to market beta, the risk of the, of the stock market. But you can also choose to overweight the types of stocks that seem to be exposed to other systematic risks. So the big ones are size. Smaller companies tend to have higher returns than larger companies. And the theory behind that is that they're riskier. Again, lower priced companies, value stocks, tend to have higher returns than higher priced companies like growth stocks. And again, the theory behind that is that they're riskier. And there are a couple of other factors that I won't dive into, uh, into now. We use products for our clients that target these factors very intentionally. They're basically index funds that are structured very specifically to target five known risk factors. And they're called dimensional funds. They're not accessible though to the, the investing public. They're they're actually they are now. They've launched some ETFs in the US, but in Canada they don't have ETFs. Historically, they have not been available to individual investors. So with the model portfolios that we produce for for our podcast audience, we've for the last couple of years, been trying to figure out how can how can individual investors who don't have access to, to dimensional funds target these other known risk factors if they want to seek higher expected returns in their portfolio. So we were very pleased when Avantis emerged because they are basically, there's some nuance in there, but they're basically a mirror image of what dimensional is doing. Same bunch of people, in fact, aren't they? They're, they're it, alumni. Yeah. It was a big group of dimensional people that left to go and start Avantis. Exactly. So we're we're pretty comfortable with the strategy, even though they're brand new funds. We kind of know who's behind them. We know what the strategy is. So from that perspective, we're quite we're quite comfortable. Uh, so that's that's that was the basis of our Desert Island picks. We picked these small cap value ETFs that target all all five risk factors. So you're going to end up with smaller companies. That have lower prices, but also that have robust profitability and invest conservatively. And that's probably too jargony for most people to understand. But we do have a podcast episode dedicated to explaining all of this, and also a, a white paper with all the thinking behind it. Mm-hmm. Sounds good. And yeah, I can link out to that uh, that episode if you'd like. But maybe afterwards, uh, send me the link, and I can sure. make sure I include it in the show notes. And if anybody wants more information, they can uh, they can check that out. Uh, that's great. All right, let's move on to bonds. What are your thoughts on bonds considering the extremely low yields that we're seeing now? Well, I was surprised this year that the, the, there was a little bit of skepticism. I think we actually cut the number of bond ETFs this year. And some of the panelists, in particular, Eve Rebite of ETF Insight, seems to have gone off the asset class almost entirely. Uh, I think he described it as uh, risk, returnless risk. <laughs> so you know you're, you're not getting much of, and you see that with bank GICs, for example. I mean, it's getting crazy. You, you can put lock away your money for a year and get, you know, a quarter of a of a, a one percent, uh, whereas you, you could practically you know double your money in like three weeks on Ethereum or something like that. So. <laughs> 
it's um, but on the other hand, after having preached this whole thing about broad diversification and not change making radical shifts in your asset allocation from year to year, that's the philosophy of all stars. Um, it makes you wonder. So I, I, I think where the rubber met the road is on long term bonds. So I think that the panelists were a little more nervous about, for example, VAB is a Vanguard uh, aggregate bond fund, uh, which is about roughly half of these bonds are five years and beyond maturity, some 10, 15, 20, even 25, 30 years. And then the other half of the bonds, the domestic bonds, uh, under five years. Um, the problem, so if you have, if you believe interest rates are going to go high, higher, and here we have the, all these inflation problems, uh, bond yields uh, going higher, and which means that the bond prices go down, you're going to start seeing losses on long-term bond funds and even aggregate bond funds. In fact, that's what we saw in the first quarter of 2021. I think uh, a lot of the aggregate bond funds were down about 4 or 5% capital losses. This is the asset class that investors expect to be all green, right? right. Like, a, like a GIC. Uh, so how do you mitigate mitigate that risk? Well, I guess you could, there are like VSB, Vanguard has, uh, and the other, the, all, all the fund companies or the ETF companies have short-term bond ETFs. In fact, I think Vanguard just came out with one in the States, not yet in Canada, with a one that actually keeps its maturities to two years and under, which is, you know, practically like a money market fund. Yep. There's a point, of course, where you can say, why have a bond ETF at all? Why not just have one or two year GICs, cash flow GICs, or why not go to a daily high interest, daily interest account that's highly liquid like EQ Bank might have uh, or Canadian Tire Bank and various other alternatives. So I think from that perspective, um, the, the panels were a little more nervous than I've ever seen them on bond funds um, because we've here we've come to the end of what, 20 or 30 year bond, um, bond bull market. I mean, from interest rates in the 80s that were in 15 to 20%, we came down to basically sub-zero, zero, and even negative interest rates. Um, so one of the problems is that the asset allocation ETFs uh, also own uh, a lot of these aggregate bond ETFs. And so you could, you could say that, hmm, does that mean I'm... Does that mean actually that I should take an asset allocation ETF with more equity exposure? Mm-hmm. So in other words, I'm, I'm taking on more risk by trying to be conservative. So for example, Vanguard has VKIP, because I've owned it, that's why I know, which is 80% fixed income. Um, that means half of that fixed income is going to be five years and beyond held up by the aggregate bond uh, portfolios. Is that riskier? Would I be better off going down to VBAL, you know, 60% equities and only 40% half the bond exposure, which means I've halved it? Or do you have to start breaking it down and say, no, I'm going to own a pure equity thing and I'm going to focus on those short-term bond ETFs? So I think that's the sort of the general tenor of why we were a little, had dropped a couple of bond ETFs. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, I remember... Um it wasn't too long ago where I remember checking the the average weighted uh, yield to maturity for some of the bonds, and it was lower than what you could get at a high interest savings account at EQ, for example, which sort of you know blew my mind, right? Because on the one end, on the EQ side, it was basically guaranteed interest rate that you're getting, your money's you know secured by CDIC, all of that, and on the other hand, you know you've got some of these bond funds which are basically giving you less yield, and you're subjecting yourself to that the interest rate uh, risk, and so it, it, it kind of it just seemed a little strange. And traditionally, it's behaved differently, right? But now all of a sudden, it's like, 
people start questioning all of a sudden, should I even be putting money into these things when I can get high interest savings account that are actually generating more yield and seem to be, and, and are actually secured and, and, you know, and safer. Yeah. It's been interesting times. Yeah. And I mean, you shouldn't be taking risk with a risk, supposedly riskless asset class. So I guess my conclusion is if I'm going to own bond ETFs, they're going to be under five years, mm-hmm. uh, be prepared for minor losses. I think, you know, at least they'd be like, Maybe I think some of those where where I said the aggregate bond funds lost four or five percent in the first quarter, um, the short term bond ones would have been maybe just two or three, half right. the loss as well. So mm-hmm. and then the two core bond ETF holdings that we see on your topics is is ZAG, so ZAG from BMO and VAB VAB from Vanguard, which you mentioned. These seem to consistently be the topics I see in Canada. Do you have any other suggestions on choosing one versus the other for anyone that's having trouble setting? I think you said VAB. Uh, has that higher duration, right? Uh, I'm not sure how it compares to, to to Zag, though. I think they're pretty similar because they're both aggregate bond funds. Their fees are virtually the same. They're both, I think, from my figures, I see that uh, uh, the BMO one owns about 1,300 bonds, 1,329, whereas the Vanguard one owns 1,000. Uh, they're all broad universe Canadian. I mean, you have, when it's aggregate, you're talking about governments, corporates. Uh, the one thing I'd say is what I noticed was the, in the case of the corporate, there's, there's short-term corporate bond ETFs. Uh, they seem to actually done a little bit better from last I checked. A, the corporates um, have a better, slightly better yield. But again, so the, if you want to go short term, there's the VSB, the Vanguard, just uh, Vanguard um, short-term bond fund. Um, but we have, you know, you go through the list. I, I said I, 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 I am nervous with the aggregate bond ETFs in general. So I mean, I, for that portion of the money, I'd actually either switch to the short-term ones, or uh, as we said, just skip bond ETFs altogether for that and go with some combination of GICs and uh, and high-interest daily interest savings accounts. Nobody says you have to put all your money in ETFs, even if you're an ETF aficionado. For Canadians to get a better understanding of which ETF is right for them, who can investors go talk to to have picks such as these customized for their situation? Many fee-for-service advisors aren't allowed to recommend specific ETFs, and many financial advisors at large institutions won't help you if you're a DIY investor as they are you know, incentivized to sell their firms mutual funds, which typically have the higher fees. What do you guys recommend for that? Oh, that's a... That's a really good question with with uh, maybe not a great answer. I don't know if uh, I don't know if John's going to have a better one. Uh, th- there are some fee for service financial planners in Canada that I find to be very respectable. Uh, Rob Engen is is one. He's been a guest on my podcast a, a couple of times. Um, he he's got a nice little fee only planning business that I think is really well suited to DIY investors. Like you say, he can't make specific investment recommendations, but my understanding is in the fee only space, it's possible to give a a list of possible uh, re- research. They can provide research on ETFs that might make sense for an individual without making a specific recommendation. So, I, and there are a couple of other fee-only planners in Canada uh, that, that I think are doing a great job as as well. So, I think that's probably a pretty good source for for information. There's also, I mean, stuff like the the All Stars column. Uh, and, and then also the model portfolios that are produced by by me and by other people at PWL, like Justin Bender and Dan 
Bertolotti, where we've done a ton of research and we were kind of saying, listen, here, here is what we think an ETF portfolio should look like. So that's, that's not specific advice to your situation, but it's definitely a good starting point to narrow down the universe. Mm-hmm. And then you guys at PWL Capital are actually allowed to give that kind of advice, right? Because you guys have all the licenses and all of that in place, right? Um, so it's just a matter of, is that person a good fit for PWL, I suppose, right? Like with the asset minimums and all that, would that be fair to say? Yeah. So we we don't tell people which ETFs to buy on their own. We are discretionary portfolio managers. So as part of our overall wealth management offering, we do manage the portfolios of our clients. And so obviously in that situation, people are getting extremely tailored advice that's specific to their situation and and their objectives. Uh, but and I mean, I, I know this is a problem. I would love to find a solution. I would love for us to get better at it. Uh, but the reality for for now is that because of the the infrastructure that we need and the type of people that we need to hire to be able to give the type of advice that our clients expect, it's not inexpensive for us to run our service, which means we have to have we have to maintain a fairly high asset minimum for clients. Now, again, I would love to be able to provide advice to more to more Canadians. Um, but the reality for now, and I think this is true for for a lot of asset management firms that give very tailored specific advice, it's uh, it, it's the, the the economics are are challenging for us to give advice to smaller investors. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, John. Did you have anything to to add before we finish? Things? Well, very briefly, um, as far as <clears throat> to plug my own site, uh, findependencehub.com, there's a section called guidance. And in there you go to financial fee only. It's pretty much a little list of fee only planners that I, people I know with who sort of get the concept of independence or financial independence. I believe at least one point money sense had a, a directory of fee only planners as well, which would probably help. I haven't uh, checked in lately on that one though. Mm-hmm. Okay, great guys. Well, well, thank you so much for coming on, uh, John and Ben. Can you tell us a bit more about where we can see more of your content and your research? Uh, yeah, so I've got the rationalreminder.ca is the website for our podcast. And you can find our model portfolios there. You can find podcast episodes, which we release every week there. Uh, we also have a community, the, the Rational Reminder community, which has about 4,000 members now of uh, pretty keen personal finance and investing uh, discussions. It's a, it's, a, it's a pretty cool spot to, to hang out and, and gain gain information. Uh, I know I enjoy spending time there. And then I've got my YouTube channel, uh, Common Sense Investing. And then I guess the PWL Capital website uh, as well. Awesome. And John, for yourself? Well, I, I just mentioned uh, the Independence Hub is sort of a daily blog of, you know, I don't write it all by any means. So I have guest blogs. I try to go uh, five blogs a week, every day of the week, uh, 52 weeks a year. It's been running since 2014. It's it's no charge. We have advertisers like uh, the ETF companies and the fund companies and a few others in the World Bank right now. Uh, so that uh, you basically just have to put in a, your email um, and you can register and get the daily digest. Um, you know, that and money said, you know, I'm, I'm a 68-year-old guy. I'm semi-retired. You'd, you'd hope, hopefully after all these years of practicing what I preach, I, I, can, I don't have to work so hard anymore uh, like you young guys. Uh, so, yeah, I'm sort of like uh, – but it's sort of like the book uh, Victory Lap Retirement describes, sort of a semi-retired, um, and that's that'll have to do for now. Awesome. All right, that sounds great. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks for coming on. All right, guys. All the best. Good to see you both. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. All right. Thanks for tuning in this month. Make sure that you reserve your free ticket to this year's Canadian Financial Summit. Just sign up for free anywhere over at Build Wealth Canada. 
ca so that I have your email and can send you the tickets for free once they become available. It's a fully online event. You can watch all the presentations and interviews for free from the top personal finance and investing experts in Canada. They'll only be available for a limited time. You'll learn an absolute ton. So just let me know where to email you the tickets by signing up anywhere over at buildwealthcanada.ca. And when you do that as a bonus, I'll also send you my PDF guide on the top tools that I use for my personal finances and investments here in Canada. So enjoy all that and I look forward to seeing you there. And don't forget to get your free guide on my top ETFs in Canada where I go into what I invest in and why. And to get that, just use my special link to sign up for a free savings account with the bank that I use, EQ Bank, where they have one of the highest interest rates that I've been able to find in Canada. It's actually as much as 125 times higher compared to some of the other major banks out there. Plus, you get unlimited Interact e-transfers and unlimited transactions. So to get the free account and my ETF guide, you have to sign up through the special link over at Build Wealth Canada ca slash eq that's build wealth canada ca slash the letter e and the letter q then send me any confirmation email that you get from them after opening an account to bonus at buildwealthcanada.ca and i'll email you the entire etf guide for free it helps support the show a lot if you do that so thank you very much if you decide to do that all right i hope you found all that helpful enjoy the bonuses stay healthy out there and i wish you and your family all the best take care Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca. 